Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday, we find out how a group of middle school students near Boston is working to exonerate the last woman convicted of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts more than 300 years ago, the only one yet to have her name cleared. We learn more about the life, legacy, and murder in India of Punjabi hip-hop star Sidhu Musewala. The 28-year-old rose to stardom while living and studying in Brampton, Ontario. Finding fame and controversy along the way, his murder brings many questions. But first, it is a big shift in drug policy in Canada. British Columbia will become the first province in this country to decriminalize possession of small amounts of some illicit or so-called hard drugs starting next year after receiving an exemption from Ottawa to federal drug laws. We hear from advocates and experts about if and how it will make a difference in fighting an overdose epidemic that has killed more than 25,000 people in this country since 2016. You know, where I live in downtown Victoria and BC, the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis is something you see all the time. Nearly 10,000 people have died in this province alone since 2016, and it only got worse during the pandemic. So I'm not pro-drug, but I'm definitely pro-solution. So today, a move towards one solution that experts, even the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs, has put pressure on governments to to look at, to re-examine drug laws that they say were intended to minimize harms but have had the opposite effect. So today, a dramatic shift in drug policy in this country. BC will become the first province in the country to decriminalize possession of small amounts of some illicit or so-called hard drugs starting next year after receiving an exemption from Ottawa to federal drug laws. Canadians 18 years and older will be able to possess up to a cumulative 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, or ecstasy, uh, within BC. The province had asked for a 4-gram threshold. Police will not confiscate the drugs. This is not legalization. The production, trafficking, and exportation of those drugs will remain illegal. The announcement is in response to a request from this province for an exemption from the law criminalizing drug possession. Here's Federal Mental Health and Addictions Minister Carolyn Bennett today. This time-limited exemption is the first of its kind in Canada, and with it comes great responsibility for the health, safety, and well-being of the people in British Columbia, and a template for other jurisdictions across Canada. Now, as Minister Bennett mentioned, this isn't permanent for now. It isn't legalization again. It will go into effect January 31st, uh, 2023 and last until January 31st, 2026. The change comes six years after this province, BC, declared a public health emergency in response to skyrocketing overdose deaths and an increasingly volatile drug supply, mostly due to fentanyl. Old prevention measures that have been in place for a long time have been called, quote, an abject and very costly failure. Sheila Malcolmson, the BC Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, says the approval is a big step in changing how people view addiction and drug use. Shame and fear keep people from accessing the care that they need. And the fear of being criminalized has led many people to hide their addiction and use drugs alone. And using alone can mean dying alone. 24,626 people died due to opioid toxicity in this country between January 2016 and June 2021. Roughly 40% of those, as I mentioned, occurred during the pandemic. Well, joining me now with more is Leslie McBain. She's co-founder of Mums Stop the Harm. It's an advocacy group for thousands of mums who have lost children to toxic drugs, and it's a pain that she knows as well. Leslie, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. 
you know, I know you'd been asking about this or for this for a very long time. Uh, what was your reaction today to this news? It wasn't necessarily what we were expecting. No, it wasn't. It was it was quite a surprise, actually. Um, and my reaction is mixed. It is a step in the right direction. And as uh, Minister Malcolmson uh, said that we just heard, it goes it, I think it will go a fair long way to uh, destigmatizing drug use and people who use drugs. Um, so it's 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 historic. It's it's groundbreaking. Um, so that's that's the good news. Um, the less than good news is the way it was rolled out. And I've been an advocate on this particular file for for quite a while. We have pushed and negotiated around the thresholds or the amount of drugs that people could have on their in their possession uh, if they were uh, stopped by police. So 2.5 grams is what is rolled out today. 2.5 grams is a very, very small amount for people who are dependent on drugs. So for those people who we, we would like to protect and we would like to be safe, uh, 2.5 grams could be even counterproductive. So, so we wish that it had been a higher amount and we will continue to work towards that. What difference does that 1.5 grams make between the four grams? I don't know whether four is what you were asking for. I believe it's what the province was asking for of BC. Yeah. Uh, what difference would that make? Um, it's yeah, 4.5, not put too fine 4. a point 5. on it, but uh, we were asking for 2.5. And this was even a smaller amount than uh, people who use drugs, those people who we have at the table who know what, drug use is and means um, it was a smaller amount than they than they wanted many people use up to 10 grams a day and that sounds like a lot but if a person has been like I say a, a drug user for uh, and dependent on drugs for a long time uh, that isn't unreasonable so the difference is only it's it's really not going to make that much of a difference, but we wanted to to go on the higher side just to protect people who who use drugs. The two point five grams is a very very small amount, and it will what the net effect will be is that a person who is dependent on drugs will end up having to perhaps go out if they're going to be within the law go out several times a day into the black market to access the drugs they need, thus increasing their, um, you know, the possibility of, of getting a bad, a bad batch of drug, um, increasing their chances of uh, disastrous overdose. Leslie, I know just from reading up about your organization and about your story, uh, you know what this pain is. Yes. Um, you've spoken to many other moms mm-hmm. out there who've suffered the same thing. What should listeners know? about when they think of an, of an overdose death, mm-hmm. what should they know about the reality of who it is that's dying? Yeah, it, it can be anyone. And certainly the mums in our organization are um, honestly mostly sort of middle-class working mums, uh, working families, um, predominantly white, and we we this is not by design by any means, but the stig the stigma around people who are indigenous or black or brown is is very high. So we end up with a, a, a 
I don't know if this isn't quite what you asked, but with a with a organization, our membership be, uh, being that that cohort, um, what we know from from these really thousands of people who have lost loved ones is that it can be anyone, and it is anyone. It's from professionals to tradespeople to high school students to college students. It, it can be anyone, and it takes only one bad hit to bring a person down to a critical overdose or death. So we know that it's anyone. We speak to that fact all the time. Unfortunately, what we see in media often is is those visible folks, the people who are not housed, the people who are who are on the street, who are using drugs in public. Uh, that is part of definitely part of the part of the issue, but also it's like I say, it can be anyone. Um, if listeners don't know, your son uh, passed away in 2014. That's right. I believe it, at 25. He was 25. And, and the situation there was different. Um, it was, fentanyl was, was beginning to raise its ugly head in terms of the illicit market. But uh, Jordan had been become addicted through a doctor's prescription um, and with, for oxycodone, which is the uh, generic of OxyContin. And then our doctor at the time cut him off the drug, just cold turkey, basically. And you can't do that to a person who's addicted to opioids. He went into withdrawal, and he ended up finding doctors who would prescribe a compendium, sort of a pharmaceuticals. And and he took he took one of each in a therapeutic amount one evening, and, and the combination stopped his heart. So it was a matter of stigma, of, of addiction, and not not having proper treatment. Um, so yeah, that was that was that is Jordan's story. Sheila Malcolmson today talked about the use, and I'm sure you hear this from the mums that you speak to as well about the use alone being being the real the stigma being the problem, and the, and people using by themselves, especially fentanyl, is is really the Russian roulette part of this now. Yeah. It's true. Uh, fentanyl has become really the drug of choice in the absence of very much heroin um, in the illicit marketplace. Fentanyl has become the drug of choice, but even fentanyl has been tainted with um, benzodiazepines, which um, is another class of drugs that doesn't respond to the life-saving uh, naloxone or Narcan, um, and other nasty substances that have been cut into it. Um, fentanyl has also been found in cocaine, in um, ecstasy or MDMA, in methamphetamine. It's, it's everywhere, and it's, um, it's causing, well, it's causing the deaths. And, and as I say now, we have the benzodiazepines in there, too, that complicate everything. So it's, it's, a, nasty, uh, it's a nasty place out there for people who, who use drugs. Uh, so we really are fighting for a safer, regulated supply of drugs for people who need them. I'm speaking with Leslie McBain. She's the co-founder of Mums Stop the Harm, an advocacy, advocacy group of thousands of mums across the country who've lost children to toxic drugs. We're talking about the decision today uh, by Ottawa to exempt BC, uh, to decriminalize the possession of a small amount of so-called hard drugs. After this, we'll talk a bit more about other solutions that that should be looked at, uh, as well as, as how to respond to what will be the inevitable backlash to this. That's coming up. 
This half hour, we're talking about the decision today announced by the province of BC and the federal government, uh, whereby BC will become the first province in the country to decriminalize small amounts, 2.5 grams of certain hard drugs, including fentanyl and methamphetamine and H and uh, ecstasy as well, MDMA. Uh, I'm speaking with Leslie McCain. She's the co uh, McBain, rather, the co-founder of Mums Stop the Harm, an advocacy advocacy group of thousands of mums across the country who've lost children uh, to toxic drugs. Uh, we've been speaking so far just about her reaction, the threshold lower uh, than people had hoped for, at least experts had asked for, uh, and also just part of the solution, no doubt. But a good first step, at least, is that what you were hearing from within your network today, that this is this was a positive sign, or, or, or was it, uh, or is there just so much more to be done to try to curb what is really a, a, an epidemic at this point? Yeah, it, both, actually. It's a really good sign um, that that we have actually had uh, BC has got, got, got the exemption 56 that we applied for um, to to decriminalize uh, people who possess even those small amounts of drugs is a is a really big step in the right direction and and we are happy for it. There's no question. Uh, there's uh, you know this will this in it, in and of itself will not stop the deaths, but as we are talking about, it will reduce the stigma um, of of drug use and. So hopefully people will use in a safer way if they can carry 2.5 grams. Um, it may or may not make a big difference, but just the very fact that uh, the federal government was able to see its way to, to the exemption is important. I imagine you hear from mums across the country. This only applies to BC for now, uh, and, and just for a limited time, at least for the time being. Uh, were you getting questions today about when, if it might be enacted elsewhere? No, actually, I haven't heard. I've been pretty busy with with uh, talking to folks here in BC, uh, the media in BC, and really and across the country. But um, as often, as you probably know, as BC goes, so goes the rest of the country. And in terms of uh, this, um, the epidemic of toxic drug deaths. So we are very hopeful that even, you know, conservative uh provinces like Alberta, for instance, um, ha- will will see the way to de- decriminalization and to other progressive um, policies in the future. So, um, yeah, it's a good step. And um, I think our advocates, you know, and our moms are amazing advocates across the country, and they are petitioning their governments and they are talking about uh, about, you know, changing drug policy all the time. So I think with our um, continued pressure, with our stories especially, I mean, we find that's the, you know, the strongest tool in our toolbox is is our stories of losing our our kids or or partners or other loved ones, um, that we will... You know, we and other advocates certainly we're not alone in, in advocating for these for these policy changes. That we will someday we will prevail, but we just have to keep the pressure up. Uh, this this change notwithstanding, and I'm hoping too that in the three year period that has been declared by Minister Benedict as the as the temporary uh, temporary change will um, continue. I don't. I can't see them clawing it back unless something really disastrous happens, but uh, I don't foresee that. So I think this is this will become permanent. Yes, and to your question, yes, it will uh, hopefully roll across roll across the country. 
watching the numbers increase, I mean, I've covered as a reporter, I covered this story a lot back in when it first when the public health emergency was declared in BC in 2016. Then during COVID, it just got worse. Uh, It's been a difficult fight, I imagine. Oh, it's 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 been terrible. It's been terrible. I mean, um, I I speak to individuals, um, you know, not maybe not daily, but you know, during a week, many months who who have lost kids, especially, um, and with these increased numbers that we hear the coroner's report every uh, about six weeks or sometimes eight weeks, depending, um, it's devastating. We we just. You know, it, it just knocks you back onto your heels to hear, <laughs> excuse me, to, to hear these numbers and to hear that nothing, no matter what the government is doing, it's getting worse. And um, that uh, brings me back to the point of safer supply. We think that's the only way we are going to uh, stop this increasing number of preventable deaths. So, yeah, it, it's a hard it's a hard thing to do, and I, I just value all our our advocates and all the advocates from other organizations as well for, you know, in the face of losing their friends and losing their family to keep on fighting. It's it's not easy. Well, Leslie McBain, thank you so much for your time tonight. Um, and we'll see where this change, if this change brings about change. I mean, I, I always think the time for talking about what didn't work is over and we just need to look at new solutions. And this might be at least a step in the right direction. Yeah. Thank Yes. Thank you for saying that. Thanks, Ben. And I appreciate uh, being able to talk with you. Well, this hour we're talking about a move today by the province of British Columbia, actually a move by the federal government to allow the province of British Columbia to decriminalize possession of small amounts of some illicit drugs starting next year, January 31st, to be precise, for a three-year period. It's an exemption uh, from Ottawa to federal drug laws. So Canadians 18 years and older will be able to possess up to a cumulative 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, or MDMA ecstasy. Within BC, the province had asked for 4.5 grams, uh, but it's 2.5. Police will not confiscate the drugs. The production, trafficking, and exportation of these drugs will, of course, still remain illegal. Um, it is a big shift, and it is something that a lot of experts, even the uh, Police Chiefs Association, have been calling for for a while because there is a recognition uh, that solutions that were in place in the past are not working, uh, and that the stigma that goes along with uh, with the criminality of small amounts of drugs, possession of, is also not working. In fact, if anything, it's driving people into hiding. And uh, as we know from the horrific statistics, they're dying there. Um, 10,000 people in British Columbia alone from 2016 uh, have died of toxic drug overdoses. So it is a crisis. We've known it's been a crisis now for quite a while. We declared a public health emergency in this province in 2016. If anything, during the pandemic, it got worse. So the idea is now it's time to time to find some new solutions to try and fix this because it's not getting better. Um, the Mental Health and Addictions Minister, Carolyn Bennett, the federal one, explained the decision this way today. This is not legalization. We have not taken this decision lightly. We have been working with the province over the past months to ensure that their final application was able to meet the criteria necessary for Canada. That's Carolyn Bennett, the minister in charge there. We spoke in the last half hour to Leslie McBain, co-founder of Moms Stop the Harm. She's amongst 
many who've been calling for this sort of move. Uh, they would like to have seen a higher threshold, but at least calling for this kind of move. So have many experts in the field, medical field, even, as I mentioned, the Canadian Association of Police Chiefs have asked for this, at least a re-examination of drug laws, because they, they say instead of minimizing harm, they're actually having the opposite effect these days. Still, there was criticism today, as to be expected. Uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney had this to say. Obviously, this is a slippery slope. And I mean, we've gone from the prime minister saying seven months ago that he would not even consider this to legalizing hard drugs in a province of five million people right next door to us. Uh, I don't know why he always insists on doing it. It's not legalizing anything. Uh, that's infuriating because, again, it's politics with something where people are dying. And I don't hear any solutions from Jason Kenney on this either. Anyway. Joining me now, who, someone who knows a lot more about this than I do, Benjamin Perrin. Ben Perrin is a professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. He was once the lead justice and public safety advisor to uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper from 2012 uh, to 2013. He knows, obviously knows Jason Kenney as well, uh, and author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. Ben, thanks so much for your time tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. I uh, just your reaction to the announcement. I don't think a lot of us saw we saw important announcement, didn't know what to make of it. There have been many over the years. This one felt different. Yeah, I mean, I think the timing of it uh, is pretty obvious. Um, I two hours before it was announced, uh, correctly guessed what was going to be approved. Uh, it didn't take a lot, but the reason I'm, I was so sure of what was coming is that actually there's a big vote tomorrow in the House of Commons that the. Uh, government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is trying to basically overshadow. So there's a bill uh, before the House of Commons, Bill C-216, that MPs will vote on tomorrow um, that would decriminalize a simple possession in throughout the entire country. And that's something that has been called for by the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, uh, countless public health officials, uh, you, know, you name it, um, survivors, I should say, as well. Uh, importantly, people who use drugs. And uh, the Liberal government has decided instead of um, taking this important step to, you know, treat a substance use as a as a health issue instead of a criminal one, it's chosen instead to uh, very narrowly try to do some sort of quasi decriminalization in in our province only. And I think it's a real um, it's it's really disappointing in that regard. Um, but by the same token, it is a big uh, a big step in the right direction. Yeah, I, I won't accuse only Jason Kenney of playing politics with this. Uh, we know that everyone does uh, to that extent, which is, again, always a shame. Uh, but but it was, I mean, the threshold's been talked about a bit, but why do you think this decriminalization is the right move? Because I know you've you thought about this differently uh, maybe, a, you know, a decade ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I know Jason Kenney. I know Pierre Polyev. Uh, they are currently spouting the same uh, ideological conservative uh, rhetoric from the 1980s uh, and the 2006, you know, Harper version of the war on drugs. And, you know, I used to work in that government. I, uh, you know, drank the same Kool-Aid they did. Uh, I've gotten out of Ottawa now over a decade out of being out of Ottawa. And I did a couple of things. One is I started talking to people, people who actually use substances. I talked to family members who had lost loved ones and I read the research and all of them pointed in the same direction that by treating someone who is struggling with an addiction as a criminal, that you only make things worse. And it's, uh, it's hard, it's heartbreaking for me to, to see the, the political moves that are being played um, with, with, you know, people who are, who are struggling. We, we know that many people who, uh, who are addicted to various substances are, are self-medicating pain in their lives. You know, one of the major 
contributors to a substance use disorder is, is childhood trauma. I, I'm, I'm doing a study right now where you know, I'm hearing folks who spent time in prison and most of them uh, we know have substance use disorders. And I'm hearing people starting to use, you know, so-called hard drugs as early as 11, 12, 13. And, and those aren't anomalies. That's the kind of average age I'm hearing. So we've got to really look differently at this issue as a society. And it's um, many people have done that. Many people like the police chiefs have changed their views. I've changed my views. And uh, I really hope that we can continue to move this forward more quickly. We just don't have a lot of time to wait, given that we're in the middle of this public health emergency. How do you convince people? Because I, I, I understand. I understand why people think this could be a slippery slope. I understand people's knee-jerk reaction to the idea of making something like heroin or cocaine, small, small amounts of, mind you, uh, you know, decriminalizing it is, you know, if you're someone who doesn't believe drugs should be legal, first we had marijuana, now we have this, it may feel like a slippery slope. How knowing, coming both from your policy background and your professorial background uh, and your conservative background, how do you explain um, or how would you try to convince someone that this is the right move, even if they're every part of their moral fiber thinks it's wrong? Yeah, so that's exactly where I was. You know, that was me. Like all of what you just described, that was me. Skeptical of all of these things. Uh, supervised consumption sites, safe supply, uh, decriminalizing drugs. Uh, you know, I like I said, I was the, the front of the front of the, the band, uh, you know, so to speak. And so I tell the story of how I kind of went through that change of heart and mind in my book, Overdose. Um, for me, uh, it really starts in your heart and then goes to your head. There, the, the evidence is clear for anyone who is willing to read it that our drug policy is killing people. Um, the evidence is there. Um, but how do we get to the point of being able to hear that? And so I had to, um, you know, really get to the bottom of this for me. I, I followed all those rabbit holes. So, you know, you mentioned Jason Kenney, uh, Premier of Alberta a minute ago. One of the things that the Conservatives, and he spouted it off again today, said, well, hey, instead of this, we should crack on, crack down at the border, right, on, on fentanyl, which is fueling the opioid crisis. And a lot of it's coming from China, most of it. We should crack down at the border. And he's still saying that today. Um, we looked into that. Our, you know, I met with the Canada Border Services Agency Enforcement and Intelligence a Director for the Pacific region here in Vancouver. They are responsible for screening the mail coming from, uh, from Asia. It all enters the Vancouver International Airport. And I asked them for statistics and numbers. And they told me that over a million, a million small packages and letters enter the Vancouver airport from, from the Asia-Pacific region every month. And fentanyl, because it is so powerful, it's we're talking about grains of sand uh, is enough to overdose. It is being uh, shipped to Canada in greeting cards. So trying to stop a greeting card in a stack of a million greeting cards, good luck. Uh, You know, so, you know, again, I had to do the research. Um, And even if you did, let's imagine you could stop them all. Fentanyl is a synthetic drug. I went online and part of my study was to do this just for fun started out for fun. I tried to find a fentanyl recipe. Could I make it at home? I found one within uh, five minutes that I, I thought seemed legitimate, you know, been kind of come up a few areas. So I contacted the U.S. National Security Lab in Livermore, California, and contacted a, uh, a scientist there. And I sent him the, the uh, recipe I'd found. And I said, hey, could I make fentanyl with this if I had, you know, kind of basic knowledge and, and equipment? He said, uh, and he verified, yes. He said, absolutely. This is a bona fide recipe. You would only need college level chemistry uh, knowledge. And you could legally buy all the precursors. Okay, so we're just playing a ridiculous cat and mouse game of the war on drugs. If we're going to keep trying to think we can, you know, threaten and punish people into not using drugs, it doesn't work. We've been doing this for years and wasting billions of dollars on it. 
I'm speaking with Ben Perrin. He's a professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC. He was the lead justice and public safety advisor for Prime Minister Stephen Harper a decade ago, and he's author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. We're discussing uh, the federal government today uh, announcing alongside BC uh, an exemption for the British Columbia, allowing the province to decriminalize possession of small amounts of so-called hard drugs, Uh, certainly something that experts have been calling for for a very long time uh, to at least try to find a way to stem the sheer, sheer number of overdose deaths we've been witnessing specifically in this province, but also across the country. Uh, when we come back a bit more just about the decriminalization, what, how it works, uh, will we see it in other parts of the country? And, uh, and, and is the threshold high enough? That's next. This half hour, I'm happy to have Ben Perrin on the show, professor at the Peter A. Allard School of Law at UBC, author of Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. We're talking about the federal government today announcing it's going to relax the criminality of illicit drugs to cope with an overdose crisis in BC, eliminating charges for possession of small possession of up to 2.5 grams of illicit drugs for personal use. It begins on January 31st at this point for a three-year period for drug users 18 and over. It will include opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA, also known as ecstasy. Uh, ben, I imagine you'd like to see this across the country at this point. Uh, is this, do you think, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, the Liberals were looking at a vote tomorrow that would have perhaps applied to the whole country. Uh, will this be expanded, do you think? Or should it be? I think it has to. Um, I, I've never, I've taught criminal law since 2007. I can tell you there's not a single other uh, offense that we have in our criminal law in Canada where uh, cities, provinces, uh, territories have to apply for the law to uh, apply or not there. I mean, is this like a buffet choice? You kind of pick and choose? I mean, it's if it weren't people's lives, it would almost be laughable. Um, it, it's clearly politics. The fact that Health Canada has approved a province-wide exemption for BC means that they've concluded that it is a medically necessary step to decriminalize uh, simple possession in BC. I, you can't prove that that doesn't exist, uh, you know, as you cross, that falls apart as you cross the, you know, BC, Alberta, or BC, Yukon border. Um, I ran the numbers this morning and um, 73% of people who died of illicit drug overdose uh, in Canada were outside of BC. So three out of every four uh, people in Canada who are dying are not in our province. And this does absolutely nothing for them. And uh what it does is it continues to say that the you know 27,000 Canadians who have died from overdose deaths since 2016, that they're criminals. That's what the law says. It says they're criminals and they deserve to be punished. And I think that's wrong. And, and the majority of Canadians think that's wrong, according to recent polling data. And so it's, it is, it's disgusting to me that we are still having this conversation, quite honestly. Um, we should have listened to the warning signs uh, decades and even, you know, at least years ago when the skyrocketing death rates began. We, this is an old news story, and yet more people have died of overdose deaths this year than at any point in Canadian history. I mean, it is just getting worse. You can see it. You can see it where we are. I mean, I'm, on, I'm in Victoria. It's not as bad as Vancouver, but it's still, I mean, you see it all the time. And as you mentioned, it's across the country now. It's across North America. No. I, you know, I, when I wrote my book, I didn't know anyone who'd, who'd passed away. A lot of people thought, oh, you know, you must have changed your mind because, like, someone you know died or something. And that wasn't it at all. But since I published this book, I know two people who have passed away. And, and I went to one of their memorial services. And it was, it was devastating to see the impact and to think about the, the life of this young Indigenous man 
who helped my family out when we needed help. We had bought a, a home, you know, when he was, he worked in construction, like so many young men do who, who have died of this epidemic. And, um, like many people in Vancouver, young families, we spent way too much money on a mortgage. We couldn't afford the house. We needed to rent out a basement suite, but it was a dump. And he came in and uh, got it there early mornings and stayed late at nights and helped us get it to a really beautiful little home in the basement. And um, he even let me swing a hammer alongside him, even though I work in an <laughs> office, you know. And um, I met his, his daughter, and he was a, a wonderful, caring, kind man. And I, I, I just think it's so sad that throughout all that time the message he got from society and from many people and the law was that he was a bad person for doing that and that he deserved to go to jail and that it's something he needed to hide instead of get help for and get support and it's 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 too late to save those people who've passed away but it's not too late to help others who are still um hiding in their addiction and that secrecy is what kills people literally kills them uh using alone is the single greatest a risk factor. And when you make something illegal, you drive it underground. Certainly with fentanyl, we know that to be true. We know, and, and people think of, you know, sort of street use and so on, but we know that a lot of what's happened in BC, I mean, I know BC particularly well is, you know, uh, just like, just like the, the gentleman you're describing using on their own out of shame, mostly. Um, and then not having anyone around to save them when it goes wrong. No one in something happens. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've you know, I've 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 had fentanyl. It was in a medical setting. It wasn't street drugs, right? If you've gone through a medical procedure in the last you know ten years, you've probably had it too. And it's safe there because you know it's precisely titrated. You know what the contents are with street drugs. Roll the dice, and there's someone there to monitor you and help you if you you know have too much. But those two factors are missing. Either both of those factors with street drugs, people using alone they're at a substantial risk of overdosing and, and eventually dying. And so, you know, what's the whole point of government It's supposed to protect people's lives and not just the jobs of politicians. And I know this is a big change for people. I mean, I was raised in the eighties, like, you know, dare and don't use drugs and all that. And, you know, I, I do believe that these, that substances are, are not great and they're harmful, but I also understand that people use them and the reasons they use them are varied. And, it often relates to things like early childhood trauma. Uh, that's a significant risk factor for people to use substances. It's also got a genetic component. And yet we're using the criminal law to, to punish people for that. And so I think people are, history is going to look back very hardly on, on, on our society and, and globally for taking this cruel and uh, heartless approach to, to a health issue. I still have a couple of minutes here, Ben. It'll still be a tough sell, though. I mean, I know so many people who who just don't think that that it's right to legalize stuff like cocaine. Yeah, you know, sure. it's it's a it's a big change. It is a big change, and and I think it needs to be messaged in a way and and explained in a way that makes people feel comfortable with it. I'm not sure we've done that yet. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think there's a lot of public education needed. A um, couple of things I would say about that is, you know, number one, um, you know, we want to keep people alive. Right. If someone uh, uses alone in the overdose, um, they're at high risk of, of dying. If we want people to have a chance at getting into treatment and recovery, we need to provide them with uh, safe drugs instead of the toxic street drugs, a safe supply. That's another part of this uh, puzzle. And by um, threatening people with jail, that does not work. Um, so if we want to give people the best chance who are addicted to these substances of having a having um, uh, health and, and, and life and being able to be, you know, 
part of our society still. We've got to do that. And the other thing is you just don't know. Um, I have talked to so many people. I encourage people to go online and hear some of the stories. Um, you know, go on the Moms Stop the Harm website. That's a group of, of family members, and they, you can hear and listen to them. Listen to them tell you about their children. These, they look like just like you and my own kids. Um, and, and they often, in many cases, did not even know their kids were using. I, I've talked to people who were senior government officials, even working in the health sector. And one morning they went in to wake up their daughter. It's a true story. And she was dead in her room. And they had no idea that she was a long-term uh, substance user. So we've got to open our hearts. We've got to open our minds. And we've got to be willing to admit that when the body count continues to rise, that what we're doing is not working. Right. We, we cannot ben continue Perrin. to go down this road. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight, Ben. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. When I say the word Salem, usually the first thing that comes to mind is witches. Whether it's because of the historical dramas that you may have seen, Arthur Miller's famous play, The Crucible. There was a movie version of that with Daniel Day-Lewis and Winona Ryder in 2014. There was a TV series called Salem. Precious Salem, caught up in a stinking witch panic. Are you guilty or not? There could be nothing worse for Salem than a witch hunt. There is something worse than a witch hunt. (laughs) A witch. What if the witches were not the common folk? What if the witches were those we've entrusted to lead? Witches are real, and they are here in Salem. Yeah, that's normally how we think about Salem. But of course, the witch hunt, the witch trials were fact, not fiction, a series of hearings and prosecutions in colonial Massachusetts between uh, 18, 1692 rather and 1693. More than 200 people were accused, 30 were found guilty, 19 of whom were executed by hanging. One of those found guilty was a woman named Elizabeth Johnson Jr. She was 22 when she was sentenced to death at the height of the Salem witch trials. Johnson was never executed, but she was never officially pardoned either, like the others who were wrongly accused of witchcraft back then. So lawmakers agreed to take her case back last year, at least look at it again, because a team of eighth grade civics class students in North Andover Middle School, which isn't far from Salem, thanks to their teacher, started looking into it and thought, with the help of the Historical Society, they worked to try to exonerate Elizabeth Johnson Jr., or EJJ, as they call her, because they're kids. So they got going on this. It was passed from one class to the other. And just recently, they've taken another big step towards exonerating the last of the so-called Salem witches to not have her name cleared. So to talk more about how this all happened and how they're so close to success, I'm joined now by their teacher, Carrie LaPierre from North Andover Middle School uh, in North Andover, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Absolutely. Happy to join you. This is a fascinating story because I don't think anyone realized there were any quote unquote witches who hadn't been pardoned, but who was Elizabeth Johnson Jr.? So Elizabeth Johnson Jr. was around 22 years old when 1692, 1693, the witch trials started happening. Um, Obviously, most famously, 
Salem is the location of the ones that you've heard of. North Andover is not too far from Salem. So she was just a young girl living in Salem, um, unmarried, no children, and supposedly had some mental deficiencies. So she kind of fit the category for witch accusations, sadly. Um, but just, just a resident. And when all this blew up, she was one of the first people to be pointed at. So she was uh, convicted, I gather, or was she convicted, yes. but, but she was never, she, she lived on, right. But she was never yes. exonerated. No, we think because she didn't have any direct descendants that over the years as descendants were trying to clear the names. Cause the most recent was 2001 that that was actually happening. Um, nobody was there advocating for her and she just kind of fell through the cracks. So how did you come across her story? <laughs> it's kind of a long story. <laughs> the, the short version is there is a, an author, Richard Height, who wrote a book uh, uh, called Shadows of Salem, which was about the witch trials and Andover's involvement, which North Andover was part of North Andover, was part of Andover then. And um, he is from an island and he couldn't, he's the one who discovered all of this about Elizabeth Johnson, very obviously in touch with North Andover Historical Society. And he was looking to get a bill in the legislature. So people I knew at the Historical Society reached out to me and asked if my classes would be interested in taking part in creating legislation to try to exonerate her. And lo and behold, you, you brought this to your, to your, uh, to your students. Um, how excited were they by it? It sounds like such a fascinating story. <laughs> to be honest, they're eighth graders. So their level of excitement about anything historical is not huge. Right. Um, but as we got more involved, as they learned more, as they recognized she was a member of their community, they definitely got more invested in it. And I have to say all, all the media attention definitely helped with their interest as well. That's right, because there was media attention sort of through this process, right? Yes. Uh, yes. So, so what, what did they do exactly? So I've been working on this with students for two years now. Last year's classes, they started, they, they did all the research, learning about Salem witch trials, about Elizabeth Johnson Jr. and what happened. Um, and they actually wrote a bill. They, they wrote bills, they wrote letters to legislators, they created presentations to explain her story, they wrote editorials, and so they're really the ones that kicked this off and got the process rolling. They were able to work with Senator DiZoglio, who is our local senator, who was able to get it into the Senate, and it actually made it to the Judiciary Committee, which is a big step. Um, and then this year's kids took up that work and again, started writing to the legislators, doing all the research to find out about her and really advocating. And re in March, I think we found out that their bill was sent to study, which means it's basically no longer going to be looked at by the legislature. So we, st we changed gears and started working on getting a pardon from the governor. So they've been writing to the governor. They've been calling the governor um, trying to get some attention that way. Good little constituents, even though they don't vote yet. It was yes, uh, they are they are very and they're very excited about making their phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this was passed on from one class to the next, right? Yes. What what was it? Do you think about the story that that allowed them to connect to to? The, I know she was local and she was young, but there must have been something about the injustice of it as well that 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 struck them. 
Well, the, the, it goes both ways on that. Yes, some students were very invested in that she was treated unfairly. We have to get justice for her. Um, she was marginalized in her community. That whole angle really resonated with kids. But I can't not admit that there were kids like, who cares? This isn't important. So there, there were many discussions about the importance of the work we're doing. Right. And they are, as you mentioned earlier, they are in grade eight, right? They can right. be forg- forgiven for being <laughs> somewhat disinterested, somewhat disinterested <laughs> about the 17th century. Agreed. So, so th- what happened after? Because there has, in fact, been a big breakthrough in this. It has, but it's not as big as the news media made it sound, unfortunately. Uh-huh. Okay. So I just have to preface that because sure. everybody was all excited. There was lots of congratulations. Kids were all excited because the news came out that she was exonerated, that the Senate had exonerated her, which is not the case. Okay, um, good to know. What what actually happened was our Senator, Senator DiZoglio, she was able to bring, um, we call her EJJ, EJJ's bill to, to the Senate and try to add it as an amendment to the Senate budget, which will give it one more chance of getting attention this year. They did support it. And they passed it. So it is an amendment to the Senate budget. So we're still moving forward. So that is a huge step. We just have more steps to go. So what next then for those who might not be familiar with the Massachusetts uh, way bills get passed in Massachusetts or the way a pardon happens? Absolutely. So what happens next is it will go to something called a conference committee, which will be members of the Senate and the House of Representatives, which are the two houses of our legislature in the state. And they will work on a compromise budget bill. So our next work when we find out who is on that committee is to start contacting them and advocating for our amendment, Amendment 842, to be left in the budget and moved on to be signed by the governor. So it's, I mean, it sounds like there wouldn't be great reason, especially with such great young advocates, there wouldn't be great reason for them to to get rid of this. No, I don't think there is. And I think at this point with the coverage that she already was exonerated, I honestly think that works in our favor that if they took it out, that would get a lot of coverage, I think. So I think it actually benefits us. So this could happen by the end of the year, presumably. Um, My understanding, which again is not perfect at this point, is that the budget bill has to be done by the end of July. So it will be done in some way, just not necessarily by the end of our school year. So I, I guess it, you don't really, you'd have to hand it off to another class then if this continues. Possibly. If it doesn't get through the budget bill, next year's kids will take up the work again and carry on. Overall, just as a civics lesson and yes. as their teacher, I mean, considering how much we talk about civics and lack of voter, you know, lack of sort of right. uh, voter participation and so on, how useful has it been as a teacher to teach them about how things work? That has been huge because a lot of times when you're teaching civics, you're focused on the federal government. So this really focused us on, hey, there's a state government and this is how it works. And this is if you have an issue, you can bring it to these people and you can make change. And I think that is a really important lesson about being involved and taking a stand and saying something. I think those lessons are the biggest ones that they can carry forward as actual, as when I call them real people, as actual citizens and voters. Right. Because they're just, they're 12, 13 at this age? 12, 13. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, anything they have, is there anything that they've done? Have they managed to master the system in such a way that you were surprised at how, how efficient they became at making this happen? Um, it's been such pieces of work. Like we do one thing, we study something else. We come back to this, we study something else. So it, it hasn't honestly seemed quick. <laughs> and I know to the kids, it hasn't seemed very fluid. They, they like instant gratification. So knowing that this has been going on for two years, they kind of feel like, oh, we're not getting anywhere. So there's a lot of, you know, reminding them, hey, you're doing great work. Legislation takes a while. Like this is exactly how the process works. And you are doing perfectly for what you need to do. That might be the best lesson of all is just yeah. how long it takes and how and how much to go. The fact that it was added uh, as a as an amendment to uh, tacked onto a budget bill in right. itself is interesting, right? Yes, and I mean that is obviously that was a discussion too because kids didn't know that that's kind of how legislation works sometimes when you're trying to get a bill through. And of course, this is huge learning for me too. I certainly don't come into this knowing exactly how to work with the legislature or get the legislature's attention or how they process through things. So, so it, it was a lot of learning for me along the way. No doubt. When the Historical Society came to you, they've obviously been keeping tabs, I would imagine. They must be impressed with just how far you've managed to, to push this, this particular initiative of theirs to try to clear the name of EJJ, as you call Elizabeth Johnson Jr.? Yes, they've been very excited and very supportive through the whole thing. They've been willing to write letters to the governor, to the legislators. So they, they've been willing to talk with the kids that it, the sport's been amazing. And she is just when, when, and if she is in <laughs> exactly. fact, uh, cleared, she is the last one. Is she not? As far as we know, I always tell the kids research, just like they found her, they could turn up somebody else. But as far as research has told us, she is the only one. Trust but verify, they always say it in, exactly. my, in my business. Uh, Carrie LaPierre, thank you so much for your time. Good luck to your students and congratulations to your students for getting it uh, this far. It feels like it's almost at the finish line. So close. And thank you so much. Thousands of people gathered outside the home of a murdered music star in Punjab in India today to pay their respects. And this was someone who had deep ties to Canada. 28-year-old Sidhu Musewala was shot and killed on Sunday while driving with two others near his ancestral village in the Mansa district of Punjab, according to Indian police. The attack took place a day after his security was trimmed by the state government, and the murder has led to a political storm there, massive outrage from his fans, opposition political leaders in Punjab. Uh, a high court judge will be leading an inquiry into the incident. This is a very big deal and a very big story. And it's quite possible you'll never have heard his music on commercial radio or standard commercial radio in this country. But he was one of the most popular artists that this country has produced in the past few years. He attended Humber College, lived in Brampton for several years near Toronto as he was making a name for himself in the music industry. Again, it's no exaggeration to say he had millions of fans around the world, millions of followers on social media, and his videos have been seen tens of millions of times. And he was the most noted face, perhaps, of a fast-growing Punjabi rap scene that has ties in Canada, in the UK, where there is a diaspora. Musewala was set for a Canadian tour this summer. Now, police blame gangster activity off the bat. Uh, said they were investigating unconfirmed claims of responsibility posted online, including a potential Canadian connection. They've since walked that back a bit. 
some online posters wondered if it could be a political issue. He had gone back to the Punjab, uh, to Punjab to run in for politics. Um, with more though, just on his legacy, his impact, and all that's happened since the weekend. Joining me now is Gurinder Mann. He's a lecturer in Punjabi language and culture at the University of British Columbia. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on your show, Ben. Thank you for having me. I gather, I mean, a lot of people might just be finding out just how popular uh, Musewala was, but he was this. He was a phenomenon uh, coming out of Brampton, which which people might not have recognized or known. How popular was he? He was immensely popular. In fact, in uh, since 2017-18, within five years, it was uh, it's immensely surprising that he gained a substantial amount of popularity. Um, if, uh, if for, your, for your listeners, if they wanted uh, basically to draw some kind of parallel, uh, if you may, uh, if you think about the 90s, where, where all of a sudden you had uh, individuals and rappers such as uh, Tupac Shakur, you had Snoop Dogg and other rappers of, uh, of that particular time period that within a short period of time became very, very popular with the masses. That's kind of what you would see what happened with Sidhu Musewala with the Punjabi community, not just in Canada the U.S. or or, uh, or India, but globally everywhere. So he had uh, he had a colossal popularity. What was it about his music? Uh, I mean, I remember, of course, back to the Tupac days, and I know that Musawala actually, even in this last video, there are, there are images, and and, and I, you know, he was a big Tupac fan too, obviously. Uh, but what was it about his music that spoke to people, and and and, and his message that spoke to people? I think there were a number of uh, a number of things. For one, there is definitely that trait that uh, that Musawala himself has, which is that kind of rags to riches stories. Which is that he came from a very small uh, he came from a small, uh, relatively unknown village, came to Canada, and all of a sudden made it big. So I think that story itself resonated with a lot of individuals within the community, um, and with that, I think uh, that definitely gave a lot of momentum to his music. The other issue was, or the other characteristic that I think with his music was, that it was certainly popular amongst the youth. And here, it definitely got into an area at times where it became also controversial because there were a number of his songs also promoted the kind of uh, the kind of gang culture or maybe the uh, the kind of gun culture um, that uh, some, that many would also associate with uh, with the rap scene in the in the 1990s as well. Um, and a lot of that music w- became very, very popular with uh, with definitely the youth and uh, um, and individuals at the at the college university level. How did his experience, do you think, living in Brampton um, allow him to sort of bridge something? Because when you watch his videos or you listen to what he talks about, there's both videos of him back in Punjab. There's videos of him wearing a Raptors jersey standing in front of the CN Tower on top of a rooftop in Brampton. I mean, he really did cross those two those those two places in a, in a very interesting way. If you if you're not familiar with his music, absolutely. I think especially when we think about places such as uh, such as the Low Mainland and the British Columbia in general, as well as Brampton, Mississauga, and uh, um, in, the, in that entire region, in, uh, in that greater Toronto area, they're immensely multicultural, and they have, uh, they've got a very large Punjabi population. Um, and individuals that come from, uh, a lot of folks come from Punjab, and they aim to build a better life for themselves, a bigger life for themselves. And, uh, and very fortunately, they are able to do so within, within Canada. So there definitely is a, a very deep, uh, deep respect, a deep love that those individuals have 
uh, have for uh, have for Canada and uh, and for uh, for Sid Musavala, he definitely was able to connect with uh, with the Greater Toronto area and uh, and the place where he spent a number of his years, um, and was certainly an area where he was able to uh, gain the freedom to um, to basically share his talent and become uh, and. Um, uh, and become popular essentially. So no doubt uh, he was a uh, he was a Punjabi artist. He was an Indian artist, but definitely he was a Canadian artist because at the end of the day, it's undeniable the role that Canada played in uh, in allowing him to uh, uh, to build on his uh, on his skill set. Given that, how was it received back in back in India? How was how was that that sort of the messaging and the way it was presented and and all of it? How was it received back in India? I think uh, the uh, uh, the news of uh, of what happened to him, or uh, or or the fact, or just that the, he, I mean, just his music Canadian because uh, a Canadian artist, but also just the, the, sort of the hip hop scene. And and you're right about sort of the controversies, the guns in the videos, and so on. How was that seen back home? Clearly, it was popular. Yes, for sure. In fact, for a number of decades now, there's been uh, because just off, uh, due to the very large growing population of uh, Punjabi uh, Punjabi artists and the Punjabi population here in Canada, there's been a lot of individuals that have gained significant popularity in singing and then become global artists and spend uh, some of their time here in Canada, some in, in the UK, and a lot of time in India as well. So uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't unusual, I think, for the uh, uh, for the spectators or the listeners in India to uh, to see themselves uh, being fans of artists that spent a number of years in Canada because it's something that's been happening now for, I would say, about two, three decades where individuals from Punjab come here trying to build a life for themselves and also begin to explore their talent as well and uh, are able to do so for a numerous reasons here in Canada and then all of a sudden um, have the means to start uh, promoting themselves, and I think, uh, and I think, social media has also uh, played a very key role in that as well. Uh, usually, with with immense popularity comes a certain amount of fame. It's obviously it's a lot of fame, but also a certain amount of power and and wealth. Um, how was how was he? I, I gather he had gone back, of course, to to run for politics, uh, and was also responsible for sort of putting money back into the into his community. Um, how did that work? Definitely. I, th- I think that's one of the reasons that I think uh, a lot of individuals are, uh, are immensely saddened by, uh, by what's happened to Siddhu Musawala, which is that he was, uh, he was someone who connected so well with the people. He was, uh, he was someone that was giving back to his community, his neighborhoods. Uh, he was someone that clearly had not forgotten his roots. Um, and, uh, and, and folks felt a connection with him. Uh, he wasn't one of those stars that people kind of look up and see who's uh, who's kind of unattainable he was um he was uh, basically a son a brother um a star amongst the people um and that just uh, that just reinforced that connection between the between the locals um there in Punjab or whether it was Canada Brampton Surrey Vancouver and uh, and, and I think that alone um just um has has certainly led to just uh, further I, uh, further sadness amongst uh, amongst people. Sorry, the, the first part of your question, I think I may have uh, I may have missed that. 
No, that I, I, so the reaction to, I mean, this was not just, this was, this was a violent, a violent, I, I believe today the autopsy showed that he had been hit 24 times. Uh, this, this was a, a targeted and violent attack. It must have sent shockwaves. Yes, uh, ab- absolutely. absolutely. It, it definitely has. I think there's, I think there's a lot of questions that people have right now. And for that reason, there's a lot of rumors coming out that, uh, as to how, where, how, why, and who did this particular, uh, this particular act. Um, I think it's very difficult right now to project or predict uh, the direction of the investigation. I think everyone's looking for the facts. Everyone's looking for answers. Uh, certainly, as uh, as often is the case amongst uh, certain rap groups as well, um, it's uh, it was well known that there were some uh, there were some musical rivalries happening between Sidi Musawala and other singers as well. As well as that, considering his lyrics. Um, there were some uh, some gangster issues and questions that were coming up as well. And ever since he became involved in politics, which in India can become very, very corrupt, uh, there were additional questions as to uh, as to his security. So right now, I think it's uh, it's very, very difficult to uh, to know as to who uh, was involved in this, especially because of the fact that there were so many possible um, individuals that potentially may have played a role in this very violent death, it could have been um, it could have been gang related. It could have been uh, related to politics. Uh, they over the past day, there's also been questions um, around uh, or statements that uh, that this may have been linked to extortion uh, as well. That there were individuals that were trying to maybe extort money from Sidhu Musawala, and he was not uh, uh, and he was not open to that. So there's so many questions that uh, that very unfortunately can't be answered just at this point. I'm speaking with Gurinder Mann. He's a lecturer in Punjabi language and culture at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about the murder over the weekend of 28-year-old Sidhu Musewala. He was a incredibly popular uh, Punjabi rap star who actually found his feet in music while living in Brampton as an exchange student in the in the in, you know in the last seven eight six seven years, uh, and became immensely famous and was murdered over the weekend in a in a violent attack uh, in his uh in the Mansa district of Punjab which is his ancestral village uh in the Mansa district near his ancestral village when we come back a bit more about his legacy because clearly uh as popular as he was much like those who've come before him who've died young uh there will no doubt be a legacy and we'll ask about that after this this half hour, I'm speaking with Gurinder Mann. He's a lecturer in Punjabi language and culture at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about Sidhu Musewala, uh, the 28-year-old hip-hop star who really made a name for himself in Brampton, Ontario. That's where he sort of cut his teeth in hip-hop and became a worldwide star, a uh, Punjabi rapper. Part, I gather, of, of a growing scene, Gurinder, as well. Like this is, hip-hop has found, found a home in its own way. It does, it does sound different, um, but it's found a home in Punjabi culture that, that, that's interesting as always when hip hop moves through, and I know it's not new, but it moves through different uh, through different times and spaces. Absolutely, with I think with where there's a lot of different cultures kind of uh, mixing, and there's different individuals coming together, and there is exposure to different types of. Uh, Music. Then people, uh, groups, individuals, bands will begin to experiment. I was born, raised in uh, in the UK, and uh, I remember there was uh, there was the Pangra or the uh, the Punjabi uh, bands of that particular time became right. very popular because they began to introduce uh, Western musical uh, instruments within their uh, their music. And then in the nineties, uh, reggae and Punjabi uh, music began to be uh, combined and starts to mix. 
And equally, being uh, very blessed to live in, a, I think, in Canada in a very multicultural environment where you are exposed to so many different types of styles of music. Um, and uh, equally, when you had these, uh, these youngsters and these youth coming from Punjab to Canada, they began to experiment as well, where they, were, they basically bridge uh, their music or the Punjabi traditional music with, the, uh, with popular different uh, styles of music here in North America. And that's kind of what uh, Siddhu Musiwala did with his music as well. I remember Punjabi MC from those days as well, who was uh, who was very popular. And some other big, I mean, the UK always had the had uh, really the, the front runners in in that industry. It's interesting to see that Canada uh, now has them as well. Um, legacy wise, I mean, he, he he burned very bright and very quickly. It was only a very short career that he had. Sadly, um, what legacy do you think he leaves behind? He most definitely will not be forgotten. In fact, when I uh, when I heard this news, like everyone else, I was uh, I was immensely shocked by the news but one of the uh, initial things that i said was i said his popularity will now grow exponentially when we look at different examples uh whether it's in the punjabi uh in the punjabi culture in the punjabi community or globally as well uh, musical icons the ones that died uh, prematurely early uh, to uh, um, at a younger age or uh, were maybe non-conformers or perceived as non-conformers in society their popularity actually increased even more after uh, after they died almost being recognized as a uh, as a musical martyr if you may so i would not be surprised that if in the coming days months years that his music is uh, is bought downloaded and his posters are found on uh, on youth uh, bedroom walls a lot more than they were even in the past uh, three four years is there any confidence that we'll find out what happened i don't know i think there's a lot of people right now that are immensely curious and want to know uh why this happened um who was involved um and will we ever know the answers uh uh, hopefully, um, but it's uh, it really is difficult. We used we started the interview talking about uh, a, a parallel and in individuals such as Tupac Shakur, and even after two three decades, those questions remain. And I think the challenge with uh, with Sutu Musawala's uh, um, situation is the fact that there's so many different potential uh, groups that may have been involved in this, and that makes it I think even more difficult for uh, for the police to gather the facts. Um, and also because of the political uh, element in this, there's, uh, there's chances of corruption. So that further makes it even more challenging for investigators to get to the bottom of the facts. So uh, was, it, uh, was it gangs? Was it extortion? Was it a political link? Was it something else? Uh, was it just an individual? Um, probably not, but, uh, but it's so difficult to say right now. But hopefully um, for, uh, for his family, for his fans, um, to get some closure and to uh, to really um, uh, find out and to, to get some closure from the situation. Hopefully they can know um, why this occurred. I guess all we can say for now is it's a big loss to to all his fans, to the music communities around the world. Grinderman, thank you so much for your time tonight and for explaining this uh, uh, this story. It's, it's been fascinating to hear more about uh, just uh, about his impact because I don't think a lot of Canadians were fully aware that uh, that he was as popular as he was. And here he was right in Brampton, Ontario for all these years. Thank you for having me. Good to be on your show.